0: Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for September 25th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Today's show is really all about a word, and the word is disruption. We hear many voices, especially from Silicon Valley, declaring that new technologies are fundamentally changing the norms of scientific publishing in particular, and that these changes amount to disruptive changes. And certainly it's easy to feel disrupted in an environment of seemingly constant technological change— But what does disruption in the strict sense really mean for a business? Is it really happening in scholarly publishing? And if it's not disruption, what is going on? A number of contributors to the Scholarly Kitchen have written extensively on that topic over the past five years, and I'm pleased to have a panel of three of them, Joe Esposito, Michael Clark, and Kent Anderson on the line to talk about it today. So let's dive in. I'd like to kick off by thinking about just what this term disruption actually means. Uh, Joe Esposito, a few months back, you suggested that some of the confusion around this term came from the fact that people don't distinguish between disruptive technologies and sustaining technologies. I was wondering if you could parse those terms out a bit.
1: Certainly. Uh, the, The first point to be made here is that this entire vocabulary owes its origins to the work of Clayton Christensen, uh, this is not original thinking on my part. But uh, sustaining technology is something that allows an organization to continue as it's been going before, but in a slightly different way. It and It enables it to enhance its existing business practice. A disruptive technology, on the other hand, which is typically wielded not by an incumbent, but by an upstart of some kind, is one that changes business practices. So a, a sustaining technology in scientific publishing might be The introduction of the uh, comprehensive XML workflow, which reduces costs, uh, creates more opportunities for uh, dissemination of material, and so on. A Disruptive technology might be something like gold open access, which changes the typical subscription model of journals publishing on its head. So the the real question about these technologies is whether they uh, make a ruckus or if they simply make things a little bit better. And that's the real distinction between the terms.
0: And Michael Clark, uh, in a post almost four years ago in the kitchen that, that stoked a lot of discussion, you argued that there were three entrenched sort of cultural functions of scholarly publishers, which you referred to as validation, filtration, and designation, that made disruption in, in kind of the strict sense the, that Joe is talking about unlikely. Uh, I think you said any time in the foreseeable future – could you could you talk a bit about that, and and could you talk to whether four years later you still you still feel that way?
2: Sure, as Joe said, my thinking was was predicated on this Christensen sense of, of the word disruption, and was looking at the scholarly publishing market. And my response was really about. Uh, I guess, a corrective to a lot of technological determinism that I saw out there, and I have a strain of that myself. So I was, you know, writing this to think through some of these issues from my own edification and really noticed that, or positive, that there are cultural phenomena going on within the scholarly publishing ecosystem that are different than those in other spaces like news or trade publishing, and that these cultural functions play a big part in in how technology can be disseminated or or is being disseminated in the industry. And so, in particular, validation, filtration, and designation are the big three. I think most people think of journals as, as primarily vehicles for disseminating information, and certainly they are, but they also play other functions in filtering information uh, for readers, as well as providing validation or peer review of their research. And designation is, is probably the most entrenched cultural function, which is to say they're, they're used in determining career advancement uh, around awards and, mm-hmm. and tenure and such, and, and, and those functions really have kept journals from being changed too radically um, today and yeah i do think that if anything it's slowed the progress of what could otherwise be disruptive technology
0: well that's interesting because i mean all of those areas uh, and I, and i'll just you know say like for validation peer review uh, and and but but also filtration and and designation in terms of you know the the norms of scientific career advancement those all do seem to be areas where where there are forces out there trying to, uh, you know, there, where there's a certain amount of experimentation from outside the industry that's happening. You know, peer review is a good example. Do any of, these, do any of those sorts of uh, activities that are happening outside of, of the publishing arena in, in, those, in those core areas look potentially disruptive?
2: Sure. I think there's certainly uh, interesting experiments, and there's a lot of what I would call turbulent technology going on in in the industry, but the question of disruption really comes down to whether or not they will dislodge current organizations. In other words, will we see, you know, uh, 10 years from now, will Elsevier and Springer and OUP and, you know, so forth be gone or substantively reduced to a new crop of organizations? And that's something that I, I just think is unlikely, given the rate of change. In other words, even things like Gold Open Access have rolled about slowly enough that organizations such as Springer and OUP and many other traditional publishers have, have co-opted them to such an extent that they're arguably now some of the, the dominant publishers of Open Access
3: publications.
0: Kent Anderson, did you have any anything to add to that?
3: Yeah, thanks, Stuart. I just wanted to reflect a little bit more on, you know, we, we tend to be seduced into using the term disruption to cover with a blanket a lot of different concepts. There's just pure competition. Um, There's failure. And those things happen in any industry, and they aren't disruption, so to speak. And I really want to return back to Joe's definition because, you know, we see that we are an industry of industries at some level. And so I think the Internet has been disruptive to printers much more than it has been to publishers Because a lot of what happens in a disruptive technology environment is you get a reordering of the value chain um, that leads up to the output. You really don't see too much change in the output. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the ways I think disruption gets misused. And so I think things like rubric and others are attempts to to take the the role of the journal in the value chain of peer review and disrupt that and take it over while still preserving the output of journals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because ultimately customers want the end product, it's just the value chain is really it's an internal business matter, intramural business matter, that the value chain is getting disrupted. It's not that the end product is going to be destroyed or or fundamentally altered.
1: The metaphor that I personally prefer to use is that of the ecosystem. You know, we know that if you've got a drought, uh, the lake begins to dry up and some of the wildlife uh, by that lake uh, will disappear and only the hardiest will get through that. The hardiest and the luckiest will get through that. In the ecosystem of scholarly communications, well, the prominent thing you have is that most publishers view academic libraries as their largest single channel of distribution. And you then ask whether or not, in fact, we have a drought. Uh, in libraries, we've got two things going on. One is that budgets are not in any way keeping up with the amount of research being produced. And secondly, uh, portions of those budgets are now being deployed to support other services and being taken away from materials. So an example there would be the recent announcement that at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, where they're developing a fund now in order to, uh, to pay for gold open access publication for their faculty with Peter Benfield's new operation, J. Well, that's money that's now being taken out of the library budget that used to go to people like you know, Wiley and Springer mm-hmm. and AAAS uh, and, and so forth. So what you've got here is the early signs of a drought in the library world. And what that means then is that the real disruption is going to be coming about uh, because of this change of this ecosystem. And mm-hmm. what I always encourage publishers to do is to think beyond the library as a sales channel. You know, what do you do if the library budget drops by 30%? Uh, that's a very, very tough question, but I think that's where the thinking about disruption has to go.
0: Well, that's interesting, and it kind of leads into something I've, I've been thinking about, which is is kind of to shift the viewpoint to that of the uh, of the frog in the cauldron of gradually heating water. I mean, you talked about ecosystems and, and kind of gradual change, and for all of its connotations of of abruptness or sudden change, its disruption, as as we're describing it, seems to be the sort of thing that it might actually be difficult to recognize until after it's it's happened. So I was wondering how you can, you know, how does one recognize true disruption in the sense that we've been talking about here while it's going on? Would would any of you sort of like to propose a a checklist for for us to go through?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is there's a noise factor that you have to be very careful to filter out. And the noise factor comes from within your own organization. So, for example, when something like uh, the Public Library of Science started up and then uh, moved over to the to PLOS One, so many journal publishers and journal editors were then uh, saying, well, they're not providing the kind of careful peer review that the established subscription-based journals are providing. The mistake there, and this is the thing you have to filter out, is to think that a new way of doing things has to include all of the good qualities of the old way of doing things. That's just simply wrong. Sometimes the new way of doing things is sorely deficient on, in any number of ways, and you have to view these things strategically from the point of view that what's valuable at the new thing is, is not worth the missing from the old thing, but this new thing that they're offering that the old thing does not. I know that sounds a little bit tongue-tied, <laughs> uh, but it's an important distinction
0: to make. Kent, do you have any thoughts on, on how to recognize disruption?
1: Well, so
3: I return to the list that Clayton Christensen um, articulated back when he wrote his book, I think it was in 97. And, you know, I think to Joe's point that incumbent organizations tend to view the disruptive entity as having weaknesses. But those weaknesses are really its strengths. You just have to recognize the fact that if you flip it around, you can see where those are strengths i don't I'm not sure how this relates to publishers precisely, but you know the uh, you know there are other uh, criteria it's perceived as underperforming the markets are viewed as insignificant things like that. I think for us, one of the potentially disruptive items that we need to keep track of and everybody's kind of keeping in the peripheral vision is the mobile space and you know the the market there is growing it's potentially insignificant but Again, we get back to this, this problem Michael identified, which is the, the fundamental product that people want is information they can trust, and they want information that's efficient and that they can get to quickly. And then we get into the players that are, who are being disrupted. I think PubMed has been disrupted to a, a large extent by Google and Google Scholar. Uh, you talk to users, and they use Google to do their literature searches much more often than they, use, than they used to use PubMed. Printers have been disrupted because of the internet. They no longer are part of the value chain for many organizations, or they're a diminished part of the value chain, and it's continuing to shrink. I just listened to a story this morning about another paper mill closing in southern United States. So there are pieces of our industry that are definitely being disrupted, but is the industry as a whole or our publishers themselves being disrupted? I think in a lumper or splitter view, I tend to be a splitter on this one. I think we need to take a, a piece-by-piece look See exactly who's uh, being disrupted and who it's just competition or a slight modification of their approach. Michael, I, you
2: know, I think Christensen actually provides
3: guidance on this.
2: And, and it, to just to uh, boil it down, it's it's a um, it's when good enough technology or good enough practices, which can previously be discounted, because as Joe mentioned, they they may lack some of the qualities of what had to four been considered an optimal solution, suddenly, uh, or at least suddenly, as far as the incumbents are concerned, does a good enough job for a larger percentage of of the market. In other words, it's this creeping up of of the good enough um, solution to the point that all of a sudden it's, it's good enough for most of the people.
3: I'd like to add into that a little bit. You know, Christensen's work really focused on technology. So manufacturing companies and how a new approach to making something could disrupt an entire industry or restructure the value chain that led to the, whether it was steel or computers or motorcycles or automobiles, whatever it was, there was some technology that changed how that thing got made. We've been seeing the internet as a technology restructure how we make things, and that's changing the value chain, but it really, again, hasn't disrupted what we make. And that's where I think we get into a little bit of a semantic issue is that, again, the value chain is what gets disrupted, not necessarily the product becomes obsolete.
0: Well, at the risk of being facetious, uh, if it isn't disruption, what is it? Michael, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think currently I would, I would call it turbulence. There, there's a lot of new technologies, mobile technologies, new paradigms around how information is paid for in terms of business models uh, with gold open access. There are a lot of experiments regarding peer review, but but there there hasn't been an an unsettling of the market, at least on the publishing side. In other words, the same organizations have adopted the emergent technology or business model or practices as appropriate to their operations and have uh, largely remained in place. Certainly, there are some new Emerging organizations such as PLOS, Pier J, you know, Rubric, et cetera, and of course, Mendeley, Although they're now now part of Elsevier, but but it hasn't generally upset the um, the overall um, market to a significant extent in terms of the organizations that have been dominant for a long
0: period of time. You named actually a number of uh, a number of different organizations that are that are doing various kinds of experiments or that are sort of plowing new ground. Uh, I wonder if maybe we can close here by just asking each of you in turn to to talk a little bit about what you're seeing on the landscape right now that might be worth watching in this regard. So I'd like to ask each of you if you had to choose one trend or development that you're seeing in scholarly publishing today that's a candidate for, you know, for something that we might look back on as disruptive change in the future, what would that be? Uh, Kent Anderson, let's start with you.
3: I think, again, with the context of the disruption would be parts of the value chain uh, that we currently rely on to make what we, we make more or less with some improvement. I think we have to look at gold open access, as Joe mentioned, for something that might disrupt uh, libraries. I think we need to also look at mobile as something that could disrupt the platform providers uh, if they aren't responsive to that. Those are the two things that I see as potentially disruptive of value chains that we currently rely on.
0: Joe Esposito?
1: I think that the interesting thing right now is the very real prospect of more and more uh, gold open access being funded through library budgets. And this would mean that you'd have an institution through the library paying for author publication, which is going to provide some kind of a stripped-down peer review system on the order of one. And I think what's disruptive about this is that it really does change the game from pre-publication peer review to post-publication peer review. Hmm. So the really disruptive thing to look for is an ability to conduct some kind of assessment of materials after they appear on a web page someplace. Currently, we don't really have good tools for that. Um, I I think that uh, Google Scholar, for example, is totally deficient. Uh, The search technologies are totally deficient. So we're going to need new ways of making these measurements. And the reason for that is simply because there's too much stuff out there and people need some kind of method of getting at it. Filtering is not enough because it's not just a question of finding what you like. You also need to find things that disrupt your own research, things that open up new paradigms for you. So if there's a single thing I'm personally looking for It's a new service that takes advantage of all of the open scientific content on the Internet and becomes a mechanism by which people begin to make judgments as to what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. And I have not yet seen that that service.
0: And Michael Clark, your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I, I agree that Gold
2: Open Access has the potential to catalyze Quite a bit of change, uh, both on the on the post publication filtering front, as, as Joe jo just alluded to, but it also creates a fundamental change in how publishers are oriented. Meaning that heretofore, most publishers have been largely oriented around readers um, and their institutional purchasers, uh, libraries, who are purchasing on behalf of those readers, and in an, an OA environment. The primary customer becomes the author. Of course, authors have, have long been customers or a type of customer, but they but they haven't necessarily been the primary customer. And I think that focus has a lot of implications that can be played out in, in a variety of, of ways, which might include the rise of you know additional pre-review mechanisms that we're seeing in, in terms of rubric and, and many others. There's there's a whole crop of these up there right now, peer of science, um, Axios reviews, and, and so forth. And the question is, does this change catalyze, as Kent said, a different value chain with, with different players at a pre-review phase followed by publication and, and something like PLOS One or other giant hmm. archive-like Publications followed by, by post-publication uh, filtering systems. You know, you know. In other words, does does the whole orientation and mm. the players at different points in the value chain start to change because of this um, focus on on the author? So do other people then have to focus on filtering for the reader?
0: Oh, very interesting, Michael, Joe, Kent. Thanks very much. Thanks thank you. Thank for, you for having me. It
1: was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for dropping into the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for September 25th, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day some of the sharpest minds in scholarly publishing detail, discuss, and debate the trends shaping the business. You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appétit.